What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. I can't imagine a better episode for episode 200 than this episode with Jordan Rayner talking about the sacredness of secular work. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and places that God has put us. Well, it is such a joy. I cannot believe we've made it to 200. Good night. From the very first episode with with Jason Romano to all the amazing guests we've had along the way. It's been a joy, a privilege, and something I truly do look forward to each and every time I get to sit down with one of these amazing people. You know, I think back to this idea, the dream of sticking a microphone in the middle of a table, talking to somebody over lunch about their life and leadership and hearing their spiritual leadership story and the thought that we have gotten to journey together over this time. It means the world you've packed your bag and come along with us. So whether you're listening today for your first time or you have heard every episode, thank you, thank you, thank you for being on the journey. And the best way for me to say thank you to you is to have this episode for you because I believe this episode brings together everything that the Lynch with Leader podcast is all about because we get to sit down with Jordan Rayner. Jordan, this will be his second time on the podcast, but he has a brand new book called The Sacredness of Secular Work. He said 100% of what we do matters for eternity. And I do agree with him on that. Jordan comes out of the tech background. Um, he serves as the executive chairman of Threshold 360, a venture-backed tech startup. He's written so many amazing books, but I believe this is his best one yet. In his Mere Christians podcast, you need to put that on your must-listen-to podcast list. Today's going to push some buttons. Today's going to challenge you. Today's going to stretch you. But I'm telling you, if we could get what this is about, we could change so much. So I don't know where you're listening from today, but you need a good old sharp pencil or a good old pen with a lot of ink in it because today has a lot of nuggets in it. So I want you to pull up a chair. And I want you to listen in to my conversation with one of my favorite people to spend time with, Jordan Rayner. Well, Jordan, it is a blessing and an honor to join with you again, my man. Thank you so much for joining me today. Jeez, Mike Lynch, I will take any excuse to hang out with you anytime. Well, Let's that go. Is, that, that's double. That is double because I feel the exact same way. You know, it's funny. I was I was driving to a Bible study early this morning, and I was listening to your last interview with Tim Keller. Yeah. He had a massive impact on your yeah. life. What was it about Tim that shaped so much of Jordan and who you are today? Oh, man. 
So I can think of three things. Number one, Tim Keller helped me understand the gospel, mm-hmm. I think, truly for the first time. I, I had gone to Christian school, heard the gospel preached, but I heard uh, what I call in this new book, the abridged gospel. I didn't yeah. hear the unabridged gospel, this God's good news for my soul, but also the entire world. Tim was the first one to preach that gospel to me in his books, and that was radical for me and so winsome to me. It made me seriously follow Jesus, I think, because of the way he preached that unabridged gospel. Secondly, Tim's book, Every Good Endeavor, his book on work, was massively instrumental for me in my life and is honestly a huge part of the reason why I'm doing the work now. But third, it's so funny that you mentioned that episode uh, that I recorded with Tim. Um, We recorded that maybe six months, nine months before he died. And I'll never forget, right after we hung up, we were right at time. And so you know this as a podcaster, yep. right? Like your guests are busy. They got to go to the next thing. So I was trying to rush Tim out. I was like, Tim, you got to go. I know we're like right at time. He's like, hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. It's like, hey, um, I just want you to know how grateful I am for you and this work that you're doing. Mm. You are in the lane that God created you to be in. Do not ever fear, ever. And I'm like weeping like a five-year-old girl. I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so that was as I was working, finishing up this new book, The Sacredness of Secular Work. And so it was inevitable that I would dedicate this book to him. Uh, And he died, I think, a week after I wrote that dedication. uh, Holy moly. Yeah, so Tim means quite a bit to me, personally and professionally. You know what's so funny? And I'm so glad you said that. And I've had like five conversations where we've spoken about what does it do? And and I think this ties into our into the sacredness of secular work because of where we work. What does it do when somebody speaks life into you like that? When you have somebody, let's just say even there's somebody that works in your office and you incredibly respect them. You may not believe like they believe. You're an unbeliever. You don't believe like they believe, yeah. but they see something in you and speak life into you. What does it do for you as the receiver of that? So the most obvious thing is it's a massive encouragement and and fuel. I think the less obvious thing, though, and something that I've been sitting with quite a bit over the last year or so since Tim spoke that to me and since others, frankly, you've spoken similar words to me that have been really meaningful to me. I I literally have a Mike Lynch note in Evernote Mm -hmm. about something you said to me the last time we chatted. It puts um, healthy pressure. Because somebody's calling out and you, hey, you're really gifted at this thing. It's basically saying, hey, uh, you're not the one talent servant. Mm. You might mm. not be the five talent, but you're at least the two talent. Yep. And so steward those talents really, really well. Wow. So it's this massive encouragement, but also this weightiness. It's funny. I, I was um, I'm reading this phenomenal biography on MLK right now. It's just called King by Jonathan Ike, E-I-G. Mm. And King felt this way. Like he would get off stage after a sermon and everyone's like, man, nobody preaches the gospel like you do. Man, you're the leader of this civil rights movement. Man, like you're great. You're great. You're great. And he's like, that was crushing. Mm. That was mm. crushing because I realized the weight of responsibility. Now, here's where there's freedom for the Christ follower. Realizing that God doesn't need me to do anything in this world, right? Like, like he can give me, he can give me great talent and I die tomorrow. He wants that work to continue. He's going to find some other 
guy or gal to take on that work. I'm not special. Neither are you. And that's where the freedom comes in. Yeah. That's that that's makes solid. Sense. That 100% makes sense. You know, and it's so good because the majority of people who listen to this podcast, they are, they're in the workspace. They are in boardrooms and ball fields and classrooms and police offices. And I mean, these people are in all, they're driving, showing somebody a house. So our audience is very much like your mere Christians audience on your podcast. They're people that are trying to get this. Why do you think there's been such a divide in our generation between sacred and secular? Oh, you're in ministry. I'm in the marketplace. Why do you think that divide has gotten so large? Because it hasn't always been that way. Why do you think that divide's gotten so large? Because in the last few hundred years of church history, for the first time ever in church history, we have begun treating the Great Commission to make disciples as the singular mission of the Christian Mm -hmm. life. And that's a problem for a whole bunch of reasons that I break down in this book, The Sacredness of Secular Work. One of those problems is that it blocks our ability to see the sacredness of our secular work. Because if the Great Commission is the exclusive commission of the Christian life, then most of us are wasting most of our time, right? Like, how much time does the average person spend sharing the gospel with their coworkers in a given month? 15 minutes, an hour, right? Like, let's be like crazy generous and say it's three hours a month. If the Great Commission is the only commission, then about 1% of your life matters for eternity. That's deeply depressing, but it's also deeply unbiblical, as I show in this book. And listen, I got to be crystal clear about this. The Great Commission is indeed great. It is a non-optional command for every single follower of Jesus Christ. It's just not only. And so why does that coach, why does that entrepreneur, why does that executive have trouble seeing the sacredness of their secular work? Because we've elevated this one commission to the only commission that mere Christians in the pews feel called to, right? Mm. And ironically, that makes them less effective at the Great Commission because they go to work Monday through Friday feeling like most of their time is wasted in the grand scheme of eternity. And so they're half-hearted creatures while they're doing the very work that God created them to do. But man, when you understand that a hundred percent of your time at work can matter for eternity, that every zoom meeting you lead, every person you hire, every diaper, you change, every Uber, you drive with excellence and love and in accordance with God's commands matters for eternity. And not just the 1% of time you spend walking somebody through the Romans road, that person is fully alive and yeah. fully alive people attract the loss like craft coffee attracts sensors. Am I right? Come That's exactly now. right. Well, and it, you know, what I love about this, Jordan, you're not writing this from a pastor's perspective. And I, right. and I want to say to this, I'm a little jealous because I am in vocational ministry. I am yep. a paid pastor. Yep. And I told a group of coaches I was just speaking to recently. And I said, you don't know the times I wish I could trade places with you. And because I think I would be the same guy, but it's different when I got a hat on and a uni on talking to a team rather than the, oh, he's a community coach, but he pastors a local church. You sit in the, or you sit in the seat of somebody who's in a secular job, correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. So I serve as executive chairman of a decent size tech startup uh based here in tampa 
I used to run the company as CEO. I've never pastored a local church. I've never been a donor-supported religious professional. And um, listen, we need people to pastor churches. Let me be crystal clear about that. I believe in the local church. I believe in the call to be actively engaged in a local church. We need missionaries like the best man of my wedding who's currently serving as a a missionary pilot in Papua New Guinea. Mm. But you know what? If Jesus came to redeem more than our souls, if he really came to make all things new, Mm. including businesses and culture and beauty and parks and cities, then we also need city planners. Mm, And we also need entrepreneurs. And we also need image bearers that are fully alive, engaged in the Great Commission, but also the first commission that God handed us in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, simply to make the world more useful for other human beings' benefit and enjoyment. And that's what I do day in, day out Mm. as the executive chairman of this tech startup. We're taking 360-degree photos, right, to make search results more useful for other human beings benefit and enjoy. We are filling the <laughs> earth yep. with this tool to make people's lives better. And mm. because that's the thing God made us to do in Genesis one, because it's a thing, part of the thing Christ redeemed us to do. See Ephesians two ten. We have been created in Christ Jesus, i.e. saved and redeemed for the good works God prepared in advance for us to do, which OPS is Genesis 1, the first commission, yep. right? Yep. And because we can fast forward and look to eternity on the new earth where we will, Isaiah 65 says, long enjoy the work of our hands. I can freely and fully engage in something as seemingly trivial as 360 degree photos of hotels with joy, knowing that there's intrinsic value because God smiles upon the work we do both with the spiritual realm, see the great commission, in the material realm, see the first commission. So I want to sit on that for a second. I heard you ask one of your listeners or one of your guests this question, and I thought it was a great question. Put street shoes on that. Your company producing 360 degree views. Yep. How does that, we understand how it makes the world better, how it makes search results better. How does it help you live out the faith that's within you how is that being portrayed through what you do yeah so most fundamentally i believe that by creating anything good in the world we are imaging the creator god Mm -hmm. right but before god tells us that he is holy or omnipotent or just he tells us that he is a god who creates it's literally the first verb in scripture right and Up until verse 26 of Genesis 1, where God says, let us make mankind in our image, we really only know one thing about the image of God. So he's a God who creates. So how do I live out my faith in the context of a tech startup? First and foremost, I just create good things and in doing so, image and glorify my heavenly father, right? Uh, But secondly, listen, there uh, there should be ways in which the Christian runs a tech startup distinctly from the rest of the world. There's going to be a lot of commonalities because by God's common grace, he's instructing both the believer and the non-believer on how to build a great company. But the Christian ought to be constantly looking at the way of Jesus and thinking about how that shapes the way that they engage with their work in the present. I'll give you one example, right? Um, it would be far more profitable for our business 
to have all of our photographers all over the world as 1099 contractors, right? But I chose when I was CEO not to do that. I decided to make them W-2 employees because mm. I thought that was a means of serving them better, of giving them a reliable source of income so that they didn't have to have three jobs at a time. A lot of these employees were fairly poor members of their cities, right? So it's providing a better job, even at the sacrifice of the company. And oh, by the way, as we loved our neighbor as ourselves, it also paid dividends for the company, mm. right? Mm. Because they were better team members. That's and right. Long-term, it was more profitable. So yep. that's just one example, but it's constantly looking at, I, 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 think, I think one of the dangers for Christians is to be so preoccupied with the mission of Jesus that we forget the methods of Jesus, mm. right? To be so preoccupied with mission that we neglect the way of Jesus, which is always the way of self-sacrifice, yep. which is always the way of prioritizing the needs of others above ourselves, right? And as we follow his model of serving first and being served second— I think inevitably it leads to us being served really well in return. You you made a great comment and you go through some, and I want to say this, and I said this to you before we started, and I'm going to say this to our listeners. This book is so rich. It is so rich. It is one of those, you can't eat it fast. You yeah. got to eat it, put it down, sit on it mull it over, get back in it. I mean, it, it really is Jordan. You, you, this is a, just as Randy Alcorn, I believe wrote the treatise of, of, of book on heaven. Amen. I believe in the same way you have done the same, the same with work and work Wow. and wor the world and our work and wow. how it matters to the Lord. You make a proposition. Your work has intrinsic value because God commands and blesses it even after the fall. Yeah. So why does God care so much about using you using the gift that he gave you? And you, you said city mm. planner, city mm. manager, coach, why does God care that you use it to its fullest? Even after the fall and, and the world got all jacked up, why yeah. does it matter so much to him? Man, that's a killer question. I don't know that I can pinpoint why. I have a guess that I'll come back to in a second. But what's clear is that it does still matter to him after the fall. There's a nasty little lie uh, running around a lot of evangelical circles today. Sometimes it's stated explicitly, a lot of times stated implicitly, that the Great Commission has somehow replaced the First Commission to create culture that we see in Genesis one. That's a lie, right? Gen we, we see it still in the book of Genesis. Yeah. So Genesis one work is good. Work is perfect. Genesis three work is now under the curse, but is not itself. The curse is difficult and arduous. That's right. Then you get to Genesis nine. God decides, Hey, I'm going to start over with humanity. I'm going to flood the earth. No one family get off the ark. And what does God say to them? Fill the earth. He's mm -hmm. reissuing much of the first commission yet again in the context of blessing. And oh, by the way, I point this out in the sacredness of secular work. Scripture mentions work more than 800 times. And the vast majority of those mentions, of course, come after the fall. That's more than every single mention of worship, music, praise, and singing combined in Scripture. Wow. Clearly, our work matters to God. Now, let me answer your question, Mike. Why? Because this is the question. This is what David's marveling at in Psalm 8. He's saying, "Who? What, what the heck? 
what is mankind that you are mindful of him, number one? Mm. And number two, that you have made him rulers over everything in creation? Because God could have finished creation all on his own. He didn't need to delegate that responsibility of work to us. Why did he? Here's my best guess. Because he's our father. And fathers delight in spending time with their children. Mm. And work is merely a canvas on which he chooses to spend time with his beloved kids. I, I tell this story in the book. Um, my daughter, Ellison, who I think was seven at the time, uh, came into the kitchen as I was about to get ready to grind some coffee beans, right? Now, we've talked about redeeming your time, my book on this podcast before, so your listeners know I put the A in type A. Okay, I am the most type A person you ever make. And so Ellison comes in and is like, hey, can I help you grind coffee beans? I'm like, oh my gosh. My seven-year-old, this is going to take way longer than it needs to. It's going to make a way bigger mess than I'm comfortable with. But I didn't hesitate to say yes to my daughter. Why? Because even though it's going to be inefficient, even though it's going to be messy, I want to be with my mm -hmm. child. Mm -hmm. I think that's why yeah. the God of the universe consistently chooses to work not on his own, but work in concert and partnership with his sub creators, you and me. That's really good. That is really good. You did something too in the book. You talked about the garden and Jesus, the gardener and him finishing so to unpack that story a little yeah. bit that that was i remember reading that and of course you sent me the advanced copy i've got yeah. it on my remarkable and i was sitting by the pool reading it this summer and i i had to put it down i'm like i have never thought about that before why after the resurrection he came back as a gardener tell everybody that story because i think it plays into the power of this whole what would I don't remember what old guy called it the scarlet thread that runs yeah. from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, tell that story. And it's directly connected to what we were just talking about. Yeah. The fact that God works with human beings. All right. So think about this. This is John chapter 20. We read it every Easter in our churches. Mary Magdalene uh is at the garden of the tomb and she sees Jesus. She doesn't recognize it as Jesus. She mistakes him as a gardener. Now think about this for a second. Jesus had just defeated death, right? Like Nothing's too hard for Jesus. He could have chosen to be mistaken as anything, a king, yep. a carpenter, whatever. Why a garden? Some people have suggested that, hey, it's simply because Jesus was buried in the garden of the tomb. So it's just a coincidence that Mary mistook Jesus as a gardener. I'll give you that. Maybe that's true. Personally, I think the God who created more than 6,000 species of mammals, including a manatee, is a little bit more creative than that, all mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Some theologians think, and I agree, that John is intentionally contrasting Jesus, who Paul calls the last Adam at the Garden of the Tomb, with the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? So in the beginning, Genesis 1, God inaugurates the first creation, but he doesn't finish it, right? He chooses to work instead through his children. He calls Adam and Eve to the first commission to fill, subdue, and rule over the world. First, Adam failed, ensuring our need for a redeemer. And now here at the resurrection, God is inaugurating a whole new world, 
the final creation, the eternal kingdom of God, and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, I believe is choosing to appear as a gardener as a symbolic way of saying that he is planting heaven on earth once again. And here's the point for you and me, believer. Just as the first Adam in the Garden of Eden had his bride Eve to help him cultivate the first creation, Jesus, the last Adam, has his bride, the church, to help him cultivate the final one. Heaven isn't coming to earth in one fell swoop like so many Christians believe today. It's going to come slowly, as Jesus said, like a mustard seed, right? It's going to come slow like yeast that slowly works its way through dough, and it's going to come in part through you and me. The good news of the gospel is not just that I get to go to heaven when I die. But it's that I get to partner with Jesus, the gardener, in cultivating heaven on earth until I die. Mm. And that's what I think we see in this symbol of Jesus as the gardener at the resurrection. And there is a power, and I'll use your phrase, when mere Christians garden in places people don't expect to see it. And everybody expects to see it on a Sunday. But most people don't expect to see it on a Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock in a boardroom or a classroom or a ball field or a, or a car ride to look at a house. They're just not expecting that. And you unpack, and I want to get into your, your four things here before we get done, your four ways uh, your work can change the world. You talk about heaven, and we, we were talking about Randy Alcorn. Why is it so important we have a proper, we were just hitting on it. Why is it so important that you have a proper view of heaven and what's going to go on there? And how can that drive me to tend my garden here a little bit better? Okay. Love that you asked this. Most of us spend more time planning a one-week vacation than we do thinking about eternity. And that's a problem for a lot of reasons. Uh, primarily, it leads us to settle for wishy-washy half-truths about heaven peddled by culture rather than the whole truth that we see in scripture, mm. right? For example, uh, this half-truth that earth is our temporary home. Kind of true. The whole truth, though, is that this earth is, our per is one day when Christ returns going to be our perfect and permanent home. And here's why that matters to you, listener, right now today. I quote this great theologian, uh, Dr. Daryl Cosden, in the book, who says this. He says, the value of secular work depends upon the value of creation, right? Because secular work is working with the material world rather than you know, the spiritual world. So the value of secular work depends upon the value of creation. And the value of creation depends on what God plans to do with this creation in the end. Mm -hmm. And if we believe that eternity is in the clouds in the present heaven, if we can't replace that half-truth with the whole truth that this earth is ultimately our permanent home because this earth will not be obliterated by God, but will be renewed and redeemed by God, then our work with this material world, coaching teams on a baseball diamond, typing on aluminum MacBooks, planting a garden in your backyard must matter deeply to God because Jesus's blood paid to redeem my soul and this 
earth that I'm working with today and will work with for all eternity, mm. right? That's the very short answer to that yep. question. Uh, it gives me purpose in the present. It also gives me a lot more hope for the future. Yep. Right? I remember in chapel as a kid, I went to a Christian school for 13 years. Anytime a speaker talked about heaven, I became dreadfully afraid. I never admitted that to anybody. I never told my parents. I never told my pastor. The idea of billions of years strumming a harp in clouds scared the living crap out of me. Scared the living crap out of me. I'll tell you what, man. I've heard that same thing whispered in conversations with adults with lots of shame. Um, But man, when I understand that Eternity is here. God, we're recording this right before Christmas, right? Yep. We sing it every Christmas. Uh, that, that God has uh, fit us for heaven to dwell with him there. That's a lie. Call it out when you sing away in a manger. That's a lie, right? He promised heaven on earth and to dwell with us here. And if that's true, oh man, I'm going to have a lot more hope for the future, right? Yep. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy my bucket list that says that this life is the only life to enjoy the best things in life. I'm going to create an anti-bucket list to sacrifice in the present because I know that an eternity that is far greater than endless harps and harpischords is awaiting me on earth with King Jesus. That'll Mm. fire you up. I was listening to Randy on a podcast last summer after his wife had passed. And I forgot who was doing the interview now. It was fantastic. And, and, he said, you know, one of the things I told my wife was, I hate we didn't get to go see everything we wanted to see. She goes, but Randy, in eternity, we get to go see everything in its perfected state. Yes. And I'm telling you, man, it floored me because you just forget that. And yes, heaven is a real place. And yes, yes. all those things. And yes, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Yes. And I mean, that is a fact. And your work and the people that are going to be there, many of them will be influenced by you, not on Sunday, correct, but on who you were on Wednesday afternoon. That's exactly right. Yeah, and he's that, always been mere Christians, always, 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 not yep. religious professionals that have been the most effective at scratching off glimpses of that kingdom, right? Tim Keller pointed out in one of his last books that, in the first three centuries of Christianity, when Christianity exploded throughout the world, 80% or more conversions did not happen from Paul preaching in the synagogue. It happened through mere Christians going to work as farmers and tent makers and mothers and marketplace people. The same is true today. We're living at a time where people are less likely than ever before to darken the door of a church to learn about Jesus for the first time. So where are they going to hear about him? Through you and me, believer, going into work every day and doing that work in a distinctly Christ-like way. And the people who are going to be most affected by that Great Commission at work are the people who understand that their work matters, even when they're not explicitly walking somebody through the Romans road. Exactly. And that's what this book is trying to help people see. It's so good. Made a quote in there, work with God, not just for God. Why does that drive you? Why does that quote push you to be who you were created to be? I got to give credit where credit is due here to my friend, Sky Jatani. Have you read Sky's book with Mike? No. It's it's probably the book I think about the most Hmm. that I've read in the last five years. Um. It was so profound. The gist of it is 
hey, it is right to be motivated by living your life for God, doing your work for God. But the primary posture we are called to is to be with him, Mm -hmm. right? Because God doesn't need anything from you and me. He doesn't need you or I to accomplish anything for his kingdom. Job 42 says God's purposes will not be thwarted, period, full stop, right? And so for me, man, it's become, I've been working really hard at this. That sounds ironic to ensure that I am doing my work with God and not just for him, because I believe that being with him contributes to his eternal pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. Psalm 37, 23 says that the Lord directs the steps of the godly and delights in every detail of their lives, every detail, right? And part of a godly life, I would argue the foundation of a godly life is living your life with God. Yep. Right. And if that's true, man, I want to be, I want to be making sure that even, even right now as we're having this conversation, that I'm doing it with him. What does that mean? It's be, it means being cognizant of his presence. It means taking time as you so beautifully did before we started to pray, to give thanks and to welcome the Holy Spirit hmm. into the conversation to never forget that the great commission and the first commission are co missions yeah right? yeah to play off that word they're not meant to be do we can't do anything in our own strength that lasts for eternity right we can only do things that are animated by the holy spirit that truly last and so i want to be cognizant of his presence as i do it can i tell you can i share a little too much information about Please. what's been working for me here yeah so some people attach a reminder of god's presence to some physical activity like walking through a door, pouring a cup of tea. You know what's worked for me? Uh, I put a big um, sticky note in my bathroom that says pray. Mm. And every time I go wash my hands, anytime I use the restroom, I don't look at my phone and I just use that time to commune with the Father. Wow. Pray about the meeting I just had with Mike Lynch. Pray about the next one that's coming up right after this. Such a simple thing, mm. but it's been a game changer for me uh in doing my work with god and i believe that has a direct correlation to the pleasure i'm contributing to the heavenly fire not that he needs anything from me for eternity you know and it's such a great reminder that before you walk into a situation god's already there he's and there he's already yeah he's already got i know steve cuss i don't know if you've had steve on uh wrote managing leadership anxiety it's, oh, it's it's a great book. And yeah. he said, anxiety comes from the gap of knowing what we know. And then there's the gap of what we don't know. And we get anxious because we don't have answers. And when I get anxious, I'm saying I'm responsible for the answers, not him. Yeah. And the reality is he's already in the situation. Yes. Our job's to lean into him. And yes. when we work with, not for we're already we're anticipating he's out in front of us. And so that was a yes. that was a powerful that was a powerful statement. Now, I want to sit in, in as we wrap up today. Um, your work matters for eternity because it's largely through your work. This is way number two yeah. that you earn eternal rewards. We don't like to think about that or talk about that. 
but not everybody's getting the same trophy in heaven, right? We don't, we're not all getting the uh, little stick batter standing there in heaven. The, the rewards are going to be a little bit different. Why does your work contribute so much to your eternal rewards? I, I don't know why, but I'll tell you that it does. We, we have, there is such a false piety in the church today of all oh, it's, it's wrong to be motivated by eternal rewards. I should just be motivated by, you know, what, whatever. Uh, that's not what Jesus says, right? Let, let, let me, let me just give you three quick reasons why we should brazenly chase after eternal rewards. Number one, Jesus told you to over and over and mm. over and over and over again. I think I cited 25 verses in the book where Jesus incur- commanded his followers to be motivated by eternal rewards. You mentioned Dr. Randy Alcorn a few times who graciously endorsed this book. Listen to what Randy said. He said, while it may sound selfish to chase after eternal rewards, it is Christ's command to us so we should eagerly obey it. If we maintain that it's wrong to be motivated by rewards, we bring a serious accusation against Christ, end quote. Mm. Mic drop, Randy. Mm. Here's the second reason why to chase after him. Rewards are repayment for what we sacrifice in this life. Listen, it's natural to feel guilty about being motivated by eternal rewards if you fail to recognize that scripture almost always ties the promise of rewards to thing God calls us to give up right now. Revelation 22, 12, Jesus is quoted as saying, I'm coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. God's saying that rewards are repayment for what we sacrifice in this life. You and I do not deserve a single thing in this life. But if we give up this life for the sake of Christ and his gospel and his ways in this world, Mm -hmm. scripture says we do deserve them in the next one. This is what, this is what proponents of the perverted and heretical prosperity gospel get wrong. Jesus did not promise our best life now, but he did promise our best life later. Why? Because true Christianity, not cultural Christianity is a fight, right? So three reasons why we should boldly chase after eternal rewards. Number one, Jesus told us to. Number two, rewards or repayment. Finally, number three, I believe the greater our rewards, the greater God's glory. Amen. Because when we get to the new earth, we are going to lay some of those rewards right back down at the feet of Jesus and worship. And whatever reward he insists that we keep, and I do think he's going to insist in his goodness that we keep some of those treasures and crowns, whatever— They are going to serve as eternal reminders that Jesus was worth way more than whatever we sacrificed in this life. And that will give him greater glory. What could happen? Final question. What could happen if somebody got this? Let's say this book comes out in January. This podcast is releasing right when the book comes out. Let's say a a a guy that works in city government he's a city manager or a or a, a ceo of a local business or a college president they read this and all the light bulbs cut on like they got it algebra yep all the word problems make sense <laughs> now right which they never did for me but for them <laughs> it finally makes sense what would happen if they got it not to just the world yep what could happen for them Oh, man. Two things. One, they're going to be more alive than they ever have been before. Mm. That's the word. It's so interesting. That's the word that early readers keep saying over and over and over and over again. I've never felt more alive doing my work. Mm. 
because I get how every stroke of the keyboard matters to God forever, right? That'll change your life. But secondly, my hope is that people aren't just made more alive by the message of scripture that I'm expounding upon in this book, but I hope that they're also challenged and motivated to make their work matter more for eternity, right? To optimize their work for the eternal rather than the temporal, to sacrifice more in the present because they're motivated by the fact that their work matters as a means of bringing God eternal pleasure, as a means of storing up eternal rewards, as a means of scratching off glimpses of the present, and yes, also as a means of making disciples and ensuring more and more image bearers are with them forever and ever in heaven and ultimately on the new earth. So that, those are the two things that I think this book can do for somebody. One, encourage them, make them fully alive. And number two, challenge them and help them practically make their work matter more for eternity. That's my hope. I wasn't kidding, was I? That episode had so many great things. And here's the great part about it is you can go and get Jordan's newest book, The Sacredness of Secular Work, and devour it. Because if we can get this and we can live this out, I believe we begin to live out the gospel the way that Jesus intended. As we are going, as we are leading, we are leading like Jesus, no matter the the place that we are. And Jordan gets it. And I love that about Jordan because he's in that world, he's in that field, and he understands it. And so next week when Casey and I get to sit down together in the takeaways episode, we've got some really, really great takeaways. And so if you've never gotten to enjoy that, do every other week we issue out a takeaways episode where I get to sit down with my son, Casey, and he asks great questions about my takeaways from the podcast and his takeaways from the podcast and how all of those things help us be better. Man, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you do go get this book and it's it's just good stuff. I'm just telling you, it's really, really good stuff. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode, there is no better way to say thank you than leaving a rating or review. It means the world to me, it means the world to our team, and it does help other people find their way to us. Well, in our next episode, we get to sit down with Alan Fadling, another second time DS. Alan and I begin um, a great conversation on this about the non-anxious life, which is his brand new book. And it is chock full of wisdom of how to live non-anxiously in an incredibly anxious world. I think you are really, really going to enjoy it. Well, again, thanks for joining me today. I pray now that you'll go be the leader that you were created to be in the space and the place that God has put you. Thanks again for joining me. Let's love God, love people, and live sin. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.